It's a great day to talk hops and spirits. I'm your host, Jonathan Green, and welcome into another episode of the Hops and Spirits podcast. We do a little bit of both this week. We have the head brewer, founder, president of Big Timber Brewing in Elkins, West Virginia, Matt Wasniewski. Uh, we also have a great six-pack of questions for you coming up here in just a second. Remember, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hop Spirits, all one word. And don't forget to check out our friend, One Sip Beer Review. Find them on Instagram at One Sip Beer Review. They do near daily beer reviews, some great giveaways, and they always have a lot of fun. That's at One Sip Beer Review on Instagram. And I also want to tease that we have coming up in October one heck of a special for you called Whiskey Weeks. That's all I'm saying. That's right. Whiskey Weeks. So get ready for that. All right, let's get to the six pack. Joining us now on the Hops and Spirits podcast for a six pack of questions is Kenny Coleman, one of the host founders of the Bourbon Pursuit podcast. Kenny, thanks for taking some time to chat Hops and Spirits with us today. I'm super excited to, and thank you again for having me on. No problem. No problem. Now, for some reason, I tend to know the answer to most people's uh, or what what their answer is going to be to my first question. And I think I know the same with you. Beer or bourbon? What are you drinking these days? Well, I mean, now that we're actually (laughs) we're actually talking to each other in the midst of National uh, Bourbon Heritage Month. And so this is actually the start of 30 days of bourbon. I'm already like seven days into it. I mean, over recording, you know, Maybe it's in a week from now, but we're already halfway through the month of, of National <laughs> Bourbon Heritage Month. So it's definitely, definitely bourbon. But I I will be honest with you. I do love me some barrel-aged stouts. I mean, you you throw an imperial stout that's like 12% or greater. I mean, sign me up. I, I want some of that. <laughs> and then on top of that, obviously, you're a bourbon guy. I mean, you host the bourbon podcast. You even have your own line of bourbon what what are you drinking these days? Kind of what's your go to? You know, long day of work. What what are you coming home to and maybe uh, you know uh, pouring yourself a drink of? I'll be honest with you. You know, I get that question so often, and I feel bad because it's hard to answer that nowadays. I mean, between I've got close to like probably 150 bottles that are open, with another five or 600 like in waiting or just like stuff that are just like it's in the cellar. I mean, if you're a beer guy, you're a bourbon person, like you know that you've got a cellar full of stuff. And mm-hmm. so it's it's always hard to figure out like, oh, what am I going to drink tonight? Uh, you know, I typically when I'm by myself, I'll I'll reach for something that is like an everyday off the shelf item or it's like a single barrel selection that we've done. You know, part of the podcast, we are able to go and we select barrels of bourbon from places like Four Roses and Jim Beam and uh, wild turkey, and so I'll drink some of that stuff on a on a regular basis. And I usually save the you know the really the high end stuff if I have friends over or anything like that to try to share some unique pours with them. And then you know I was reading, and you know you you mentioned on, on the uh, the website that you've enjoyed bourbon since your college days. Um, I'm sure you were 21 when you when you started dabbling in it. <laughs> Uh, what drew you to bourbon? And I'm guessing you weren't just taking shots back then either. Well, let's, uh, if it's college, you probably, (laughs) you probably guessed it right. I mean, the way it all kind of, I guess it really happened was I joined a fraternity on campus that was kind of known for being the bourbon drinkers. So one night, I mean, I was, I was a regular, regular, you know, undergrad like everybody else and picking up a, you know, a case of Natty Light to take to the party and, 
after a while, they said like, ah, no, we're going to start drinking bourbon. So sure enough, I was just kind of like falling in line with everybody else. And I found myself drinking bourbon and Cokes when we went out to the bars and when we had house parties and stuff like that. And then even after college, I had a lot of friends that kind of started migrating. They found things like wine and really kind of dove into that world. And I just continually found myself gravitating back to bourbon. And it's the typical, you know, I guess growth period that a lot of people go through is you start off mixing with Coke and then you remove the Coke and eventually you remove the ice and then you're drinking 130 proof bourbon straight and you're like, yeah, it still just doesn't have enough kick for me. So <laughs> there's, there's definitely a point where your esophagus just starts, you know, putting up the white flag, but it, uh, that's kind of been my journey. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then, you know, you, you know, I've, I've looked at the pot or, you know, your social media, you guys have gotten to travel a decent bit of places to go pick those, you know, small batch barrels and, and things like that. What's the coolest place that you've been able to go visit uh, so far in this bourbon journey? You know, once you start going and visiting a lot of these distilleries and for anybody that's looking and thinking, oh, I want to go to Kentucky, I'm going to do the bourbon trail you're going to get burned out kind of quick because anytime you go to these distilleries, it's a lot of like just canned presentations. And it's what we usually call the 51% corn tour because <laughs> anybody that's into bourbon knows that to be bourbon, it has to be at least 51% corn. So they always hear that on every single tour. And after a while, you kind of figure out like, what can I, is there anything out there that has something that's unique or something that's different? And one of the things that it really stood out to us, and it's truly a masterpiece in what is the history of bourbon, everything like that, is Castle and Key Distillery. It is the mm -hmm. home of where old Taylor, everybody knows the name Colonel E.H. Taylor. It was his old distillery, and it's literally in a castle. And it was resurrected by the people who started Castle and Key, and they're recently starting to launch some of their own products. And you have some bourbons that are being... Um, co-produced or manufactured there as well. Now the bourbon in itself, it still needs more time. You know, some of it's starting to start coming of age, but just in awe in regards of just being able to be there and take in the moment of this was actual bourbon history coming through. This isn't what you would go to at a lot of distilleries and see computers running everything. I mean, this was literally what Colonel E.H. Taylor built and you get to see a legacy in the grounds. It's something that's super cool, super unique. And it's one of those hidden gems that unless you really know about it, you might not know about it. So it's, uh, it's one of those, it's one of those really cool things that I, I would encourage everybody to kind of go see if you are on the bourbon trail, it's over there near Woodford reserve. So you can kind of go and see the rolling fields with the horse farms and really just take in a picturesque Kentucky at that point. I was gonna say castle and key is such a unique story. Cause I mean, it, did it sit, uh, pretty much untouched for a good little while before the 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 current owners kind of took it over and are bringing it back to life. I mean, it's got springs, natural springs, and all sorts of things on it. It's a it's a beautiful site. They have railroad tracks coming through where they had railroads actually coming and dropping off grains and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's amazing the type of infrastructure that was built in place for this and what they needed to get done. You know, before they had pumps and all that sort of stuff of how you could push in water. So there was a lot of stuff that was considered engineering masterpieces at the time. And then kind of piggybacking that question, 
where where somewhere you all would like to go visit? Like where where's on the bucket list that you have not been able to check off yet? You know, at this point, we've hit pretty much, I think, a lot of places in Kentucky. There's probably just a few here and there that we haven't hit. And, you know, one of the things that I should also mention that a lot of people don't actually get to do is actually go to Heaven Hills Bernheim facility. We get to see an actual manufacturing plant that they don't allow visitors. But for ourselves of things that we want to go see or or want to go visit, I'm open to really going anywhere outside of the state of Kentucky and seeing what people are doing different. When you look at what happens in Kentucky, it's just on a such a massive scale because people are, or should I say distilleries, I mean, they, they're looking at the future and they are putting down so many barrels of whiskey every single day and they are just trying to keep up with demand and try and anticipate what future demand is actually going to look like. So right now you've got these behemoths that are pumping out 1,200 to 2,000 barrels per day and that gives you an opportunity to go and look at other smaller distilleries around the nation to figure out what are they doing different? Are they using different kinds of barrels? Are they, you know, when I'm thinking of like char levels and different manufacturers, are they using some different kinds of grains that makes them unique? Because when they're doing a, a run, it might only be three to seven barrels a day. So that's going to make a huge impact on, you know, what this whiskey is going to be like. And is it going to be ready in three years, five years? Is it take us great then? Or is it going to have to be like, you know, a lot of the big dogs at Kentucky, they have a lot of good product, but most of it doesn't really sit well until you hit around six years of age. But we found a lot of craft distilleries that are pretty good at around like four to five. So there's a lot of really cool things that we are looking forward to see, are looking forward to seeing. But for me, I really think there's a lot of cool things happening outside of Kentucky and we're always open for the invitation when somebody wants to put, open up to us. I was going to say, it never beats uh, being able to go see a new place and a new distillery for sure. Uh, you guys launched Bourbon Pursuit back in March of 15. So you guys have, you know, five years under your belt. What what made you guys, you know, decide to launch one? You know, because now like all of us have one nowadays. But uh, what made you guys decide to kind of maybe be one of the first ones to do something, especially even on bourbon? Yeah, we, we weren't a, a creation of COVID. You know, that was that was the thing that we've, <laughs> we've noticed over the past a few months is that there's so many more people in the space because a lot of people more have time on those hands now. And for ourselves, it was actually my, one of my partners in this, uh, Ryan Cecil, he, his, his day job has him and his real job, you know, we all have real jobs outside of this and his real job has him going around. He's, he does yard care maintenance, like spraying chemicals on lawns and making sure they're all nice and pretty. And, you know, he owns that company. And so he was spending all of his days listening to podcasts in the car and he thought, well, I'm going to start a podcast. And he was going to start it on his industry. Come to find out, I think they probably have a short runway in regards of listening you know, to people talking about types of chemicals you're spraying on lawns. And his buddy said, well, why don't you start a podcast on bourbon? You know, you're from Bardstown, Kentucky. So he kind of took that as the, the, the stepping stone. And he knew me at the time, knowing that I was really getting into bourbon. At that time, I was you know, late 2013, 2014, the bug really hit me for collecting and buying a lot and really diving all in and trying to learn as much as I could. And knowing that I had sort of the technical background on the execution side, it really made a good partnership. So we launched in March of 2015 with, I think, eight or 10 episodes. And we kind of also took it at a different approach. We didn't try to be a copycat of what else, anything else was out there. We really looked at the space and tried to figure out what was missing. 
there was only a few podcasts at the time. And, you know, the most notable ones was really more of a business to business focused. There was a few of them with guys sitting around a microphone, you know, sniffing Elmer Teeley saying, oh, it smells like vanilla and caramel. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I was just like, well, I wouldn't want to listen to this. Like, what, what can we do that's different? And so we decided to kind of go the interview route and expose a lot of the personalities behind bourbon. So people get an, an opportunity to A, get an education. And that's one of the things that I love about listening to podcasts is that you learn something. You want to come away thinking like, oh yeah, I, you know, I just didn't laugh for an hour and a half or maybe only just like five minutes of it, but I want to come away and actually learn something or hear a story. And so we, we can actually expose the personalities of the people behind the brands that everybody loves to drink. I think it makes you a more of a fan of the product that they're making because we can kind of be like, you know, we can bring Fred Noah on the master distiller, Jim Beam. He's a large in life personality. And when you talk about him barbecue and you're like, Hey, I love the barbecue mm -hmm. and you, you kind of bring it on a similar playing field. And so trying to make that sort of commonality between the listener and the person we're interviewing is really what we're going for. I was going to say, and it's a great uh, chance to give a history lesson too on a lot of these distilleries that have uh, been around, or at least the grounds that they're on. They, there's been something there for, for centuries. Um, you all have your own bourbon now too. What's that like? It, it was funny. I mean, we, before we started recording this, it all actually came out of nowhere because we got a phone call after having uh, talking about something on a podcast and I got this phone call and they said, Hey, we helped launch that brand. Would you be interested in doing your own? And we never even thought of actually going down that route and you know, heading down that path. And one thing led to another. And, you know, a few years later, we've now launched 33 different single barrels and we're getting to ready to launch a new product in December of this year. And, it's been a fun journey because we get to see what the other half of the industry is like. We get to understand what it's like to actually source barrels on the open market because we're never going to be distillers. We don't want to be master distillers. It's just something that we do not find something that's, we're not going to go to school and be an engineering major. We're just <laughs> not going to do it. You're just going to enjoy the beverage. Exactly. Exactly. So we just wanted to make it a fun process and we didn't want to come up with some slimy and, basically a, a false backstory saying like, oh yeah, we found some recipe off of, you know, my grandpappy's old bottle <laughs> and tried to replicate. No, we didn't want to do that. You know, we, we're very open. We're very honest. We tell people as much as we can about the barrels we select and, you know, where we get them from. And it gives us an opportunity to be as transparent as possible and provide that because we are a, a whiskey geek and a whiskey consumer. And we want to provide that same transparency that other whiskey geeks really, really find interesting. And so when we want to go through, you know, we started seeing what barrels in the open market. We've also started partnering with other craft distilleries and being able to kind of make that a win-win because we kind of look at it as a vetting process. Let us go and buy a barrel or two or three or four off you. We'll bottle it, put it underneath our label. We'll put your name on the bottom of it. And that kind of gives people an inkling to say, yeah, these guys know what they're doing. I trust their palates. I'll go ahead and, you know, spend this money on some distillery I've never heard of because I trust these guys. So we've, we've started going down that path and, and really tried to find a home for a lot of craft distilleries that are doing good things and really help evangelize their brand to our consumers as well. That's, that's pretty awesome to hear. My final question for you, Kenny, is what's the coolest thing you've been able to do because of bourbon? 
you know, I think it all comes back down to the podcasts in regards of the people that you meet. I can tell you one off the top of my head, and this was something I'll, I'll never forget this to the day I die. We talked about this po- uh, this bourbon on a roundtable recording, a roundtable recording is where we kind of invite in uh, members of the bourbon community with inside the bourbon, or sorry, inside the blogging realm. And we do this once every three weeks to kind of talk about topical news. And there was this bourbon release that came out. It was uh, called The Last Reserve, and it was a 40-year-old bourbon that came out. And people were lining up. They were lining up like a day and a half in advance. And they, the bottles themselves were like $900. And what people did was not surprising. The same thing we see with even in the beer world and sneaker world, you go and you get a very highly sought after bottle. You don't drink it. What do you do? You go and flip it. Mm -hmm. And not only that is that, you know, there were some people that went and flipped them. The second portion was, the people that did get to try it said it was terrible. And, <laughs> and I, I just remember I talked about it on the podcast and I'm like, yeah, this is what you expect. This is what's going to happen. It, if people, and that was just like, nobody's going to actually drink this if it's terrible. So you're going to flip it, blah, 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 blah. So I started talking about this. I would say probably about a week later, I get an email from the person who created it. Uh, his name is Buddy Thompson. Buddy was the former chairman at Glenmore Distilleries. Uh, he was in his late eighties and he said, Hey, I kind of want to talk to you about this. Would you mind meeting at my place and just, you know, having a drink and talking about it? And I said, sure. And I knew as soon as that happened, uh, it was going to be foot in the mouth and I had to just start eating my words. And I got to learn more about his project. You know, these were barrels that he had actually had from his time at Glenmore distilleries and he just held on to them forever. And he had, he had, I think three different releases, like 40, 42 years old, 43 years old, something like that. And I had the opportunity to sit down with him, record a podcast with him and actually sit there and taste that bourbon with him. And I remember I said it to his face, I was like, buddy, this is not very good whiskey. It's too old, but it smells amazing. And I, I can still <laughs> to this day, remember the smell of that whiskey in my nose because it was just so pungent, so good. I mean, if Yankee Candle could replicate it, that would be something else. And, and Buddy passed away earlier this year. And so that's just one of those things that I'll always be able to kind of look back and say, I was able to meet somebody that was part of bourbon history and and kind of have an opportunity to share a drink and and share a moment with them. So I think those are those are the types of things that I really do enjoy about this that you do get to take something away where it's not only you're just educating people but for myself selfishly I'm actually taking a a moment to be able to kind of create a connection with somebody too. Yeah, that 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 is amazing and that is awesome and uh Kenny I appreciate you taking the time to do a little bourbon and uh chatting with us. So uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you again for having me. Thank you again to Kenny Coleman of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast for hopping on for a six-pack of questions. If you have not yet, you need to listen to it. You can find it pretty much where podcasts are available. They're also on social media. Just look up Bourbon Pursuit. You won't regret it. And now we head to the hoppier side of things here on the Hops and Spirits Podcast. And joining us is the head brewer, founder, president of Big Timber Brewing in Elkins, West Virginia, which has a uh, special place in my heart. Matt Kwasniewski. Matt, thanks for uh, taking some time to chat. Hops and uh, uh, beer with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you are 
the head brewer and president of Big Timber and Elkins, but that's not necessarily where your love of beer started. You, did you get into the home brewing out in Montana where you lived before, or how did how did your love of of uh, not just beer but craft beer kind of start? Yeah, um, well, I, I grew up in Elkins, then went to WVU, and I came back home and was working on the family in the family business, which is a sawmill. And at the time, my brother was out. He started school in Spokane, Washington. And I, I'd been wanting to go out west. I was thinking about going to school out there. Just never, never really did it. But I uh, kind of saw what road I was going to go down. And that was probably stuck in Elkins for a while. If, uh, <laughs> I kept working at the family business and working a lot. Um, so I was like, well, I'm, I'm young. I should get out a little bit. And so I, uh, my brother bought a car. They already had his plane ticket bought, so I was like, "Well, I'll drive it out there because I want to kind of maybe maybe look at moving out there and you know stop in some towns along the way and and really enjoyed Montana and uh, decided to move there for I didn't know how long at the time, but it was a couple of years. So, and and um, is that kind of where you you kind of started doing some home brewing and then you know started working at a small craft brewery there as well? Is that kind of what got you into it all? Yeah, um, I mean, to, I don't know, the kind of longer story is like, uh, my dad drinks all kinds of beers, but he, he wasn't, it wasn't necessarily craft beer. I mean, when I left West Virginia, Yingling had just come into the state. This is like 2009, I think they came into the state. Uh, or, and right before that, they moved the limit from 6% up to 12% or 9%. So as far as craft in West Virginia, I graduated college in 2008, and uh, you had some rogue, you had a little bit of Sierra Nevada and like Harpoon. That was that was basically the craft scene at that time, which really wasn't much. And I didn't really, I had a dead guy um, here or there, but you know, mostly it was like, oh, Yingling was like the special beer you drink at in college, but. So Yingling had just come in and it, it started changing the beer scene a little bit, but you know, at the time I, Yingling was premium craft, whatever you wanted to call it. It was, it was the, the best beer you could buy. And, and like my dad never drank a certain beer. He wasn't a, he wasn't a single beer guy. He drank all kinds of stuff. Um, so, but it was all basically light lagers. That was what was available in the state. And I spent uh, I did a summer internship out in Colorado and I, I went to a beer festival out there, first beer festival I ever went to. And, uh, you know, I like, I think it was Odell's Easy Street Wheat. That was like one of the first crafts I was actually into. But, um, yeah, so I moved to Montana and uh, I'd always wanted to try to make my own beer. I don't, it was just like, uh, I grew up on a farm, worked in manufacturing. Like it was, you know, I, I was used to making things watching things like used to agriculture, making things grow, making things with my hands. So, so I was always like, you can make your own beer. That's kind of cool. So, and the Montana homebrewing scene, um, it's still years. It was years above in 2010, what it is in West Virginia now. I mean, everybody knew a homebrewer, homebrew clubs were popular and quite large. Uh, 
I was in Missoula for a little bit, and that's the they had three or four different stores where you could buy homebrew supplies, and this was ten years ago. Yeah, so I, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was gonna say. So I mean, basically, I mean, it, it's a you put that you know degree to to good use and and you know started homebrewing right i mean that's kind of i mean nothing wrong with that oh oh definitely i uh uh i was i was a finance major in school uh but uh i was working at a little bank and uh most of my work got done in a few hours and i poked around on like homebrew forums on the website on like homebrew talk and beer advocate and whatnot for a while after and kind of taught myself how to homebrew um yeah at the time i whenever i even whenever i started homebrewing i wanted to make like basically lagers and this was like when nobody homebrewed lagers basically so so you were a little different back then right (laughs) well yeah in 2010 like the craft beer scene in west virginia and 2008-2009 was probably comparable to what it was 20 years ago in a lot of places and that's not we, we're a little slower out here and adapting things and whatnot but it's not like a necessarily a, a bad thing it's just having that six percent limit and being such a small market i don't think people really the regional brewer, craft breweries that were coming up didn't really care about it and mm-hmm. um so I had this like weird inkling in college that like I wanted to start a brewery because I thought like, oh, Pittsburgh Brewing Company was really cool making Iron City back in the day. But but that's what I kind of pictured hey, was some kind of nothing light, wrong with light. some icy light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then um, whenever whenever I moved to Montana, my wife had moved. She's from New Mexico originally. She had moved there not too long after. And uh her favorite beer was like Alaskan Amber. And so she started and I was like, man, that's, I don't know, like I'll try these beers. And that's how it's kind of crazy how just 10 years ago, like the kind of the beer knowledge. And I know I'm like immersed in it now, but it was still like, Oh, that dark beer sort of like, <laughs> Hey, nothing, then, nothing wrong with that. You, you yeah. know, and, and I love how your wife kind of, you know, in a sense pushed you or, or at the time, I'm guessing girlfriend, fiance at the time, but, you know, pushed you kind of a little further along. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I'd, I'd only been to like a couple big brewery, like tours, like that had been on like a AB tour before and a course tour um, when I was in Colorado and I'd been to like, like FX Matt up in Utica, New York. And, uh, but it, it was these, like, it wasn't like the few guys working in the back, like how most breweries are now. So it, it just seemed like this immense kind of com- complicated thing to do was to make your own beer. But then in Montana, it was, it's kind of crazy. Cause like there were a bunch of older people, like, 60s 70s that had been making homebrew pretty much their whole life because whenever it was outlawed they still went to the grocery store and most grocery stores still sold malt syrup and you know it wasn't great beer i don't think but it was it was beer so i i think their, their homebrewing out there is just 
it's got a lot of history to it compare comparatively speaking. So. Well, and then, you know, obviously as time goes on, you get, get the job at, at Glacier Brewing there in, in a small town in Montana. And then I'm guessing, does that take you to going, Hey, back to that thought, you know, in college of, I could maybe turn this into a, a legitimate business. I mean, how, how did that percolate? Yeah. So I was working at a bank there and I joined the zoo cities emerges through Dimergis in Missoula. That was like the Missoula homebrew club. But my wife, or yeah, Ashley and I, we were just dating at the time. Like on weekends, we did go around Montana, which they had 30 some odd breweries, like hit a brewery and go hiking or whatnot. You know, and we were like, oh, these are so, like, we always had so much fun at them. And it's like, my homebrew was getting better. And, uh, we had this idea like we can make this work and at that time there wasn't a lot of like nano equipment and given the budget that we were thinking we were like okay we can convert some of these plastic tanks and whatnot and and uh find like a stainless 55 gallon drum and that can be the kettle and and uh i was and and i was like I think we can go back to West Virginia and my hometown and it'd be a great location. But I, I kind of, I was also poking around on the pro brewer forums and uh, saw there was an, an opening for an apprenticeship at Glacier Brewing in Pulse in Montana. And I was like, I could do that, but that, you know, we're going to have to stick around here for like another year or whatnot to finish the apprenticeship. And, and you know, I, after talking about it and, uh, you know, I talked to my parents some, they're in, manu- they're in manufacturing, and they're like, well, you know, it is manufacturing, probably getting some actual experience firsthand would be a good idea, and so it's, that's what we did. And then you moved back home in 2011, correct? Yeah, so I, I got out there, I moved January 1st, 2010, and we got back to West Virginia, I think, uh, might have been December 2011. So, and then and, uh, the, the the plan for what became Big Timber start to just slowly build from there. Uh, kind of. We had already come up with the name when we were in Montana, and and we, we there was no we can't really remember what the aha moment was, but um, you know, my parents being in the lumber industry, uh, I had a dog named Timber. There's a town in Montana called Big Timber. Uh, it was I just all was, around you right it was just all it just slowly came together perfectly yeah <laughs> now you guys opened though in 2014 so i'm guessing there was a little bit of finding the right location finding either the correct backing or getting getting what you needed and, and all that so what was that process like for you guys to finally make it the dream come true yeah so we got back um yeah they're late 2011 and just kind of got settled and we incorporated in 2000 early 2012 we talked to our business partners uh sam mosey and my sister amber kwasniewski and uh got them on on board and uh started looking for a location and then uh started fighting the finance thing and that was my degree. I was in banking for a little bit, but in 2012, 
nobody wanted to lend startups money. It was just a kind of a nightmare. And, and being at, and that time in the craft beer business, like it was go as big as you can afford. So I went from thinking, you know, like a brewing in a 55 gallon drum to we need to get a 10, if not a 15 barrel system. And uh, we got, we hit most of the points that we had enough capital and we started looking at equipment and, um, and used equipment at the time was just obnoxious. Like used was actually, I think, more expensive than new just because you could have it right then, which <laughs> is crazy. But, um, but eventually we got a bank and a couple like these rural development groups that helped us out, NCIF and Woodlands. And they finally agreed to loan us some money. <laughs> um, uh, we had the property, uh, we bought a, a building with our equity south elkins it was just a it was originally built as like a building supply store and it was just used for storage but it worked because it wasn't we could gut it there wasn't much in it put a new floor down um, and we bought a 15 barrel system with four to 30 barrel fermenter we're, we're talking with matt kwasniewski head brewer and president of big timber brewing in elkins and matt you know, you guys launched in 2014. Did you ever expect it to kind of grow like it did and then need a newer, bigger facility like five years later? Because, I mean, you guys grew rather quickly, I would say. Yeah. And, you know, where other markets were more developed, I think we hit West Virginia at a good time. And uh, when we were in Montana, most of the beer, or there's more Montana brands in there than any other brand usually. You know, there sure there might be a door of AB or Coors product, but but everybody carried a lot of Montana beer and a lot of Montanas and uh, drink the beer. And I I think there were a lot of similarities like between the two states, West Virginia and Montana, and the people. There's a lot of pride, and, and it's a rural, and they're both rural states, kind of blue collar. And, uh, and I was just thinking like if this works in Montana and as many big breweries as there were there, why aren't there more breweries in West Virginia? And I, I don't really know why, but whenever we entered the market, yeah, we were, we were the 10th brewery operating in the state. You know, there were several pubs that had been in operation for a long time. As far as distribution, it was kind of crazy because for packaged product, it was Mountain State distributing. They were selling um, bottles that they uh, contracted out at the time. And then Mountaineer Brewing, which was the other brewery of any size in the state, really, that did over a thousand barrels, um, they had just sold um, their equipment and liquidated the business. So all of a sudden, it was, we went from two breweries that you could find their packages fairly regularly the there was just one and that was mountain state so and craft was booming at the time so it was like i think there was a big vacuum for that needed to be filled with local craft i was gonna say i mean knowing you know i, I grew up in west virginia i i lived in southern west virginia for a, a good little while but you know before i moved here to kentucky one of the things i noticed was there just wasn't a lot of craft beer 
really on the shelves. You know, I mean, you you had like you said a couple, and then slowly but surely, you know, say a Greenbrier Valley, um, you know, uh, uh, Bridge Brew Works and things like that. Now I know Bridge Brew Works has been around for a while, but you know, you you, you get the you slowly started to see more on the shelves. You know, I'm, I'm kind of going to jump around on my question list here, but you know, the West Virginia craft beer industry is probably still kind of an infant so to so to speak i mean you know how how do you see it going and do you see do you see it starting to finally grow like you thought because i'm starting to notice there's a lot more breweries popping up maybe not as much distribution but i'm starting to finally see more more breweries as i I make some trips back from time to time yeah i think there's still a ton of room for west virginia breweries to grow it's just like i said we're for an east coast state we're our population density is not very high and it's kind of a hard state to get around where it's not a huge state, but it takes a long time to get from point A to point B. Just it's, it's the mountain state. You know, it's amazing how much that 6% cap and, and people forget it that it was only, it was less than 15 years ago that you can buy a beer over 6% in West Virginia. How much does that post behind? If there's anything kind of good to come out of COVID, is a lot more um, about a lot more local beer breweries are making their beer more accessible to West Virginians. So, and that's kind of West Virginia. Like, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people that like to drink beer in their backyard at the fire, and uh, you know, so and and I think. Uh, going to like a brewery tap room kind of can be intimidating if you're just if you drank the same beer for the last 20 30 years but it is amazing just how many people that have been in our tap room that came in because it's like oh hey i live down the street and um they're like i've never really been to a brewery and then they drink a pint and then you know a year later they're telling they're bringing you beer back from wherever and you're just like oh wow like but you know i i, I kind of told my story and 10 years ago that was pretty close to where i was so hey it's amazing how you know th- things come full full circle um what, one one thing i wanted to ask you is you know i i've my my, my mom is from elkins so i've spent some time in elkins growing up um were, were people like are you crazy for putting in a brewery here because i mean as you said it's you know, there's a. I think there's a lot more trees and and, and wildlife than, than people sometimes around there. But I mean, it it is in a nice area. You're you're on the way to Canaan and some skiing and so forth. I mean, but did people look at you a little sideways, like you want to put what in Elkins? Well, whenever I was out, I went to like every bank in the area. Um, whenever we were shopping loans, and one of the banks actually told me there it. They're like, there's a lot of, a lot of breweries in this area, aren't there? And I was like, what are you talking about? Aren't any <laughs> and he's like, there was like Mountain State and Blackwater up in Davis and Thomas. I'm like, yeah, but they're 45 minutes an hour away. Like, that's that's not a lot. Like, there aren't any breweries in this area. So, you know, now uh, Elkins has two, so it's us in Brewstool, which is kind of crazy. And, and, and I was going to say, I mean, for, for you all, obviously, you know, Big Timber is now kind of all throughout uh, West Virginia. You know, I got it back home in Weirton where, where I was visiting for the 4th of July. Um, 
for those that maybe don't know, what can people expect when they have a big timber beer? So, um, being in like our small market and I'm pretty sure we're the biggest in the state. If not, I know we sell the most in state, um, for the, for local breweries. Um, but, uh, whenever we made our core beers and that was IPA and Porter, what we were going to put in the cans and, and even our year round draft, which is blonde. Um, we used to have pale, but we wanted to make an approachable and like an affordable beer for West Virginia. Cause I, I thought that was the biggest problem was when I was in Montana, which I said, I thought there were a bunch of similarities between the two. They had some big beers, but for the most part, every brewery in Montana put out like a real solid pale ale and, uh, you know, just good light drinking beers. And, and whenever we started, we wanted to make it competitive at like, um, more at like national craft brand prices. We thought we could get to that point where we could compete there that way, you know, somebody might, they see we're close to the same price as a Stixer of Boston Lager. Maybe they give us a try or whatnot. That's how we see our cores. And I, we're going to stick with it because it's it's we want to make it we want anybody and everybody in the state to be able to drink beer made here so um so we we keep our cores priced pretty competitively and then we also enjoy brewing fun stuff so um or new stuff like uh you know we're, we've started getting into the hazies and kettle sours and doing some pastry stouts and it's just but, and that was a market that I didn't think really existed maybe in the state, but we were like, well, shoot, it's working everywhere else. Let's give it a try here. And we're surprised that how quickly that moves on the shelf, um, which is good because most of those need to move pretty quick. But uh, I was surprised because I didn't, I didn't think, a, I never thought I'd see like a $16 four pack in West Virginia. Now we sell them. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, when you make good beer, people want to want to drink them. And and you guys got the newer facility in 2019, which kind of lets you do a little more than just your porter and so forth. You now have mm -hmm. your uh, lager, lager, which which I love. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got more beers now that you can put out. How important was that expansion to let you grow beyond just the, like two core beers that you could distribute? Yeah, so I think the last year we were at at our old facility, which we had six 30 barrel fermenters and we did over 3,700 barrels that year, which <clears throat> I always put our capacity at like 3,200. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't think we could even produce that much <laughs> in that <laughs> facility, but that was a lot of, that was a lot of coming in on the weekends, doing a filter, um, uh, just as soon as a tank was open, we were moving that beer. Like as soon as it was crashed and done fermenting, we had to move that beer and get it filled up. And that really limited and what like new beers we could make because half our tanks were pretty much tied up with IPA. Then we had Porter and um, Blonde moved a lot. So that's why we didn't release the pills earlier because it was just, it's a lager and ties up the tank. 
when we moved to the new facility in getting in 2019, we added four 60 barrel fermenters and two 15s. Um, so we started using those 60s for IPA and, and then we brought our, our 630s down there. And then 15s, we started playing around and doing more fun stuff per se. Those beers started taking off and now we don't have enough 15s, which is kind of, you know, come full, well, done a 180 since just six years ago, whenever we got in the business where it was just big tanks, fill them up and churn out beer. Now it's get a bunch of little tanks and churn out a new batch every few days. So. But it, it's cool. It, it's, uh, it can be a lot, but because we love it, we actually enjoy like seeing what kind of flavors and stuff you can get out of beer and um, just experimenting. You know, sometimes you get a dud or whatnot, but most all of them you learn something from. So that's always good. We're talking with Matt Kwasniewski, head brewer and president of Big Timber Brewing in Elkins, West Virginia. And Matt, before I let you go, this is kind of the last question I always ask folks. Um, but before I even get to that, I want to say it's kind of cool talking to different brewers because your story kind of lines up with some of the ones in Kentucky of you got so big in distribution, you, you could only do a few, then you got to a newer facility, you could start experimenting more. So I, I just want to say that that's been, that's a great thing to see coming out of, out of uh, West Virginia and Southern West Virginia. But my last question for you is what's next for big timber? I mean, obviously we got to get through the, the pandemic <laughs> uh, to maybe get back to a little bit of normalcy, but what's next for you, for you all? Are you going to, get out of out past West Virginia and, or, or what, what's kind of the next uh, step for you guys? Yeah. Well, currently we, our new tap room is under construction and it's going to be much quite a bit larger than our current tap room, but we like having like a, a homey sort of comfortable, relaxing tap room. We don't want it large and cavernous, so it won't be that, but we'll have a lot more outdoor seating. Well, we don't have any right now. So, but we, uh, when we bought our new facility, that was kind of a big point was we were going to be on the river in Elkins. There was a great space to have a beer garden and a big deck. So, so we're hoping sometime next summer that'll get open up and, um, you know, it'll, it'll be a place where I'm hoping people be happy to get lost for a few hours we're going to serve food a little bit there so that's that's the big project at the moment and we're just we're really enjoying um putting out new beers and innovating and uh you know also being able to package a lot more we, we've done a lot of wrap cans and uh i'd like to get a a labeler so we can do even shorter runs of cans and just um you know if you enjoy the beer you have at the tap room it's available to grab in a four pack and take home with you so and we don't have plans at the moment to expand out of state you know our our core brands are still growing in our current market and it's just i'd, I'd rather rather be recognized as as a, as the beer you when you're in West Virginia you drink other than like oh you can buy this beer here or there and it's from West Virginia it's just I'd, I'd rather go deep in our current market and it's been a 
it's been a great market for us. So um, as long as uh, as long as I think we keep putting out great product, uh, I, I hope people will keep coming back to it. Well, Matt, I, I must say I've had a had a few of them. My wife's had a couple couple of them. We we enjoyed enjoyed every one of them. So you guys are doing things right, and uh, it seems like you guys are on the right track with everything you're doing. Thanks. And and I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, and I appreciate you having me out. Thanks again to Matt Kwasniewski, the head brewer and president of Big Timber Brewing in Elkins, West Virginia, for hopping on, and also to Kenny Coleman of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast for hopping on for a six-pack of questions. It was a great episode. We got some more fun coming for you. And like I said earlier, I can't wait until October hits and the Whiskey Weeks, that's right, with an S, Whiskey Weeks, uh, takes over. So stay tuned for that. Remember, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Hop Spirits, all one word. Check us out. Keep up to date with all of our fun that we have going on. Until next time. Cheers, everyone.